This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 30. So far, all the evidence suggests that artificial intelligence with its algorithms and the platforms uh, that actually it inhabits has made us more unfocused, more impulsive, more biased, more predictable, more narcissistic, and less curious. And if you put all of these together, I mean, I think the assertion that it's an assault on human intelligence isn't just a clickbaity, sensationalist term, but, you know, if we have some intelligence, we're using it less. For all these years, we've been worrying a lot about whether AI will achieve and maybe surpass human intelligence, and instead, it has diminished it. How will AI impact you and your organization? Why will AI make emotional intelligence even more important in the future? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Dr. Tomas Shimuro Premusic. Tomas is an international authority in human intelligence, talent management, leadership development, and people analytics. He has written 10 books and over 150 scientific papers on psychology of talent, leadership, innovation, and AI, making him one of the most prolific social scientists of his generation. He's also the chief talent scientist at Manpower Group, co-founder of two companies, Deeper Signals and MetaProfiling, and professor of business psychology at University College London and Columbia University. Tomas and I have known each other for some time, and it was an honor to have him take the time to talk to us about his latest, and in my opinion, his most important book, iHuman, AI, Automation, and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. With AI all around us, and most of the conversation focused on the technology itself, Tomas steps back to ask the big question of what does it mean to be human in the age of AI? His answers may surprise you. And in our conversation, Tomas and I discussed his early career and how it led him to focus on research and writings on human intelligence, how AI plays on our need to relate to others, compete with others, and make sense of our world, how AI is making us more impulsive, more biased, and less curious, and what we can do about it, why EQ and soft skills will become even more important for leaders in the age of AI, why AI has the potential to quantify job performance for knowledge workers, and what leaders fear most about the coming age of AI, and much more. Tomas, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to chat to you. Really excited to talk to you about your new book, the research you've been doing for the last 10 plus years. Looking back at your career, much of your research has been focused on understanding human intelligence, how to define it, measure it, and what happens when we decide not to use it, especially when we select competent or incompetent leaders, as one of your more popular books talked about. Where did your passion and curiosity for human intelligence come from? Great question. So, you know, people ask me, why did you do X or Y? And I think back. I feel very empty. I'd love to come up with a meaningful story that suggests some strategizing logic and plan. But with me, it's 
always one thing led to the next and it was serendipitous. Um, you know, I started my academic career in a pretty dark and bleak place, studying moral philosophy and metaphysics mostly, and then psychoanalysis, which wasn't even traditional mainstream psychoanalysis, but Lacanian psychoanalysis, you know? So like the level of abstraction and non-empiricism could not have been more profound. And so I really sought to, this was in Argentina as well. Right. So, you know, I was partly trying to leave the country and partly trying to become an empiricist and do empirical psychology, research psychology. And I kind of got a scholarship to go into UCL in London. And then when I had to choose a topic for my dissertation, I first told my advisor, hey, I'd love to do political intelligence. Or, and he said, no, no, you don't know anything about British politics. You'll be useless. Forget about it. Then I said, okay, maybe I can do social intelligence. The aptitude part was interesting to me because I spent so, so much time focused on problem behaviors, clinical traits that I wanted to sort of have a go at the bright side. And then he shut that down as well. You know, social intelligence, oh, you wouldn't be able to publish anything. You know, the, the research died 80 years ago. Then I kind of landed in emotional intelligence, which, you know, leaving aside Goldman's popularization of the term, there was a little bit of research. And I teamed up with people who were developing the first range of studies into EQ. But when I did that, Basically, the conclusion was, which is you know, 4,000 publications later, that's still the case. EQ is basically a rebranding of the big personality traits, big five personality traits. And so with that, you know, I still focus on intelligence, but to look at the relationship between intelligence and personality. And after three years of multi-study dissertation, you can tell it was a good dissertation because the conclusion is there is no relationship, you know? So a lot of time zooming, zeroing into something very detailed and abstract that, so basically you can be intelligent or not, or average and have whatever personality you might have. But I was really trying to expand the notion of intellectual competence and account for some of the traits that make people successful that don't have to do with their geekiness or their IQ, etc., which is not to not to attack or critique the concept of IQ, which, as you know, is very underrated in the world of HR, but trying to broaden our model for what it means to have potential, human potential. So, you know, one thing led to the next, and that's how I landed it. And, you know, I would say in that moment onwards, I tried to focus on human intelligence, although human stupidity always kept interfering. And then the book on why so many intelligent, that's almost like Freudian sleep, why so many competent men become leaders and how to fix it is really a demonstration of how smart people continue to make non-data-driven decisions in HR and beyond and end up doing very silly and stupid things to everybody's peril. So that's the long version of the explanation. No, I appreciate that. I think it's really great context. A lot of times people wouldn't really know that much about you, that you were from Argentina and what I like about that story and sounds like what you've done throughout your career is you sort of pull that thread of curiosity and you've let that kind of guide your career in some ways. I've known you for a while, but if I read your books, you're like, well, you're very smart. I kind of feel like, oh, Tomas has got a plan. Like there's probably a plan for these books. Like maybe he's planned out the five or six books. Like actually not really. What you're doing is you continue to kind of ask these questions, which leads you down this path of curiosity. And then you want to publish that and share that with the world in the way you do, which is tremendous. Yeah. 
I love the idea of accidentally conveying, you know, some strategy and plan when in fact it's sheer serendipitous, which might seem like I'm engaging in deliberate self-deprecation and fake humility, but I am from Argentina, you know, so we are not capable of even faking humility. <laughs> Especially after <laughs> winning the World Cup, you know, I've made a promise that w whenever I talk to somebody, I will remind people that we won the World Cup just in case they forgot. <laughs> We didn't forget. We're very happy for Argentina and for you as well. Let's talk about your latest book, iHuman, AI, Automation, and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique, which I think honestly is one of the most important books that you have written. But talk more about why you decided to write this book and now, besides the fact that you must have known that ChatGPT was going to hit the exact perfect time this book would come out. So you're obviously psychic as well. But what made you decide to write the book? I wish I had known, you know, I wish I had known, but it was pure accident and luck. Uh, just like, you know, when I wrote not just the book, but the original article on why so many incompetent men become leaders, people told me, oh, okay, you knew that this would happen with this election or this, uh, you know, whatever. And it's no point mentioning people because everybody can fill in the gap in personality with their favorite incompetent leader. But here, you know, the, I guess there is if not a strategy, somewhat of a logical progression or transition after becoming very data centric in one specific area of HR, which is assessment, selection and recruitment, I began to see an opportunity, not just for AI, but also for passive data and all the new technologies that are capturing a wide range of human behavioral data to actually produce valid signals to predict employee performance and even things like future leadership effectiveness. So, you know, for me, AI was always something that happens to the data, something that translates data into insights. But I did see an opportunity to make HR more data-centric and more evidence-based, mostly by allowing bigger scale and access to more people, which actually could also, I thought back then, about 10 years ago, make organizations not just more meritocratic, but also more inclusive. Then, of course, you know, AI became far bigger than that tiny vertical in HR. And I read a lot of stuff, a lot of books and articles about AI and its different methodologies. I noted that there was something missing, you know, a book that actually focuses on humans rather than machines. And when we came up with the idea for this book with HBR, it was at the heights of the COVID pandemic, pandemic much like most people, I found myself detached from in-person connections with others, except, you know, my kind of nuclear or close family. And under the heavy influence of AI and algorithms. And, you know, so I remember vividly going through these kind of typical cybersecurity uh, tests where you have to identify the number of wheels or traffic lights or bicycles in an image and failing that several times. So, you know, I failed the, are you a robot? Are you a human test, basically? <laughs> so I began to, as soon as I began to question my humanity and whether I had been automated already. And then I read a really good book by Brian Christian, The Most Human Human, where he basically, he tries to take the Turing test as a human. So he tries to be unanimously fight as a human by human judges who are there to assert whether chatbots and algorithms do human-like things. And his point is very interesting because he basically says, well, artificial intelligence is actually not just teaching us what it means to be human, it's redefining 
what it means to be human. So in essence, you know, I wanted to focus on what it means to be human in the AI age, because AI is the defining technology of the times, and also how we can best be humans and express our humanity in these times. Of course, we're big questions. So, you know, several years and headaches later, I came up with this book, which is an attempt to answer those questions or at least encourage people to ask these questions more often. There was actually a, a section on ChatGPT in the original manuscript. It was GPT-3, so not the chat version, but the early version. It was very obscure at the time. And the editor said, okay, we don't need this kind of a technical nonsense. So even though ChatGPT is not mentioned in the book, the book is very much about the questions that ChatGPT has raised. And so I think that is contributing to the interest right now. You're asking questions in iHuman that are really questions of our time. Like, what does it mean to be human? Who's defining our behavior? Is it AI? Is it us? They make this one point that I think is just important for anyone in HR to really understand is that people have three fundamental needs. The need to relate to others, the need to compete with others, and they need to find meaning or make sense of the world. Talk a little more about these fundamental needs and how AI is impacting each of them. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe to start with affiliation, which is our need for connectedness. I mean, everybody knows this. It's almost a cliche and needless to say, but we are living more connected, not just to other people, but also other things, information, etc., than ever before. Hyper-connectedness is one of the big enablers of the AIH without the need to connect with others and to express our affiliation need, we wouldn't be spending so much time on social media platforms and their stickiness is really testimony of the algorithm's success at co-opting or hijacking that affiliation need, right? So whether it's Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, it doesn't matter, but we have never been able to make connections with others, superfluous, meaningful, etc., and to be in touch with others, which obviously during the pandemic enabled the fortunate of us who are part of the knowledge economy to continue not just being productive, but also in touch with others. The second need, need for achievement, obviously technology is mostly positioned as a productivity tool. AI is no exception. So you know, whether it's LinkedIn or ChatGPT, whatever you're using, we have the opportunity to then standardize boring tasks. We also have the opportunity to show off to others and self-promote. And there are these wonderful cruel measures of esteem and status that the AIH provides. And meaning, the need for meaning is probably the most interesting one because I think humans first are meaning-craving animals. We want to make sense of everything. And we have both superficial curiosity in the sense of like craving for fast food facts and superficial kind of information and also deep curiosity. But our relationship with meaning is now fully mediated by AI. Uh, ChatGPT, again, you know, this is some of the risks that this highlights, right? If you think that you can ask this large language model, any question, and you take its answers as fact. I mean, it's a pretty distorted view of reality, and it's a very lazy way to get meaning. Most of our news feeds are curated and carefully selected by AI, which functions very much as a self-enhancement tool and builds these filter bubbles and digital cocoons that 
only expose us to people that tell us what we want to hear. It's a little bit like you surround yourself with people who tell you everything you want to hear and you never hear anything that you don't want to hear. And it's very, very difficult to exit these bubbles, filter bubbles, unless you visit the analog world and you speak to a random person in a bar or next to you on the plane. And then even like podcasts and the large, vast repository of information and knowledge, et cetera, they fulfill our need for meaning. So much information, in fact, that we end up misinformed or uninformed. I think the needs are there. And perhaps the main criticism to the AI age is that if these needs become not just fulfilled, but almost exacerbated in connection to AI, they turn into the opposite, right? So social media platforms can turn us into very antisocial creatures. And then, you know, the performative element of these technologies or platforms can turn us into greedy, self-promoting narcissists. And we end up very, very confused or so intoxicated with meaning that we just decide to believe whatever we want to believe. And we, you know, stay proud and enamored of our biases. So anyway, that's in a nutshell. One of the statements you make an I human is so far the most consequential aspect of AI is not the ability to replicate or surpass, but rather impact human intelligence. Tell us more about how AI is impacting our intelligence. Yeah, I'm obviously not suggesting that we are going to reduce our IQ or intelligence or that if you measured, you know, the same person's general mental ability in 10 years ago and in five or 10 years, it would decrease, right? However, the performative or accomplishments or performance aspect of our intellectual capabilities is impaired. And this is so obvious that, you know, when I was writing these sections, I almost thought, do I really need to say this? But, you know, there were some pretty impressive and astonishing facts that illustrated the point. But yeah, in essence, what I try to do with the book is to focus not on the future, but on the present and on the short-term past, the recent past. So far, all the evidence suggests that artificial intelligence with its algorithms and the platforms uh, that actually it inhabits has made us more unfocused, more impulsive, more biased, more predictable, more narcissistic, and less curious. And if you put all of these together, I mean, I think the assertion that it's an assault on human intelligence isn't just a clickbaity sensationalist term, but you know, if we have some intelligence, we're using it less. It makes sense also in the sense that We've always created tools that improved our adaptability to the world. And if now our ad adaptability to the world is largely outsourced to smartphones and the platforms and apps that are mostly powered by AI, we don't need to think so much. We don't need to reason. We don't need to engage in curious behaviors and uh, critical thinking and so forth. So I think for all these years, we've been worrying a lot about whether AI will achieve and maybe surpass human intelligence and instead it has diminished it or at least diminished our capabilities because most of the time you know all we're doing is liking this resharing that staring at a screen actually even those of us who are educated and skilled spend most of our time coding things and training the ai to predict us better what do you say to someone who says Tomas, no way. I don't believe it. That's hype, right? Where's the data? Like, what are the facts that you're seeing 
to back that up? Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be a healthy answer to that assertion because it is a powerful one. And for sure, this wouldn't be the first time that we blame our own technological innovations for our own cultural demise. It has happened lots of times, you know, most recently with TV and radio before with the invention of the newspapers. When they came out, people thought, oh, this will kill social gatherings because people will have no need to meet and gossip if they can find out everything. And of course, in ancient Greece, Socrates and his fellow philosophers said they opposed to writing because that technology of the time writing would reduce or impair memory. But look, the facts are the facts, right? First of all, the economic cost of the destruction economy for the U.S. alone has been estimated at 650 billion U.S. dollars a year, which is 15 times larger than the productivity loss due to sickness, health-related leaves, etc. right? That's simply a function of the fact that 50% of smartphone use happens at work and not during work. If you look at the productivity increases that technology enables, they peak around 2005 and then they go down. And then, you know, you have people basically being hooked on. I mean, every productivity gain that we achieve is not reinvested in our reskilling or upskilling, but gets wasted or evaporates in other distractions. You know, multitasking, which is an illusion and a myth, has been estimated to amount for the equivalent of, I think it's 10 or 15 drops in IQ points, right? Just simply because we're switching between one task and another, which interesting factoid is about twice as debilitating intellectually as smoking weed. And presumably less pleasurable, although we can leave the listeners to work that out if you know <laughs> they have any experience. I mean, the bias part is very noticeable as well. To be absolutely clear, you know, humans don't need AI or any technology to be biased. We've managed to be perfectly prejudiced and biased by design for millennia. But when you have algorithms that cater to our biases, and they amplify our existing beliefs, you can see how people are becoming more polarized, more tribalized. Even with the Cambridge Analytica fiasco, the company that was mm -hmm. blamed for Facebook. Uh, interfering, exactly, I mean, scraping illegitimately Facebook or harvesting Facebook profiles and translating these into a measure of people's personality traits. The research had been done by Cambridge University and was legitimate research, but they just applied it to that. What was interesting about this study, other than the poor ethics and the malevolent or at least unfortunate result of interfering with democracy, was that even back then, they realized that only 15% of voters or the population in the UK and the US were deemed persuadables. So imagine you have 15% of people who could be persuaded. Of course, bombarding them with fake news is also illegal and ethically questionable. But 85% of people are not even persuadable. They have made up their mind already. And they're the same people who, you know, even though we have automated fact-checking devices during presidential debates or prime ministerial debates, people don't change their minds. It doesn't matter how many times politicians lie. I mean, they still vote for somebody who they would rather have a bit. So, you know, the irrationality was there, but it's been amplified. And I think the worst one really is how AI is making us more predictable because in reducing the number of available choices that we have, and we're already time-deprived and with limited attention span and very busy and basically lazy, the prediction that AI makes turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
Do you remember Henry Ford said, my customers can have their car in any color so long as it's black? Well, it's not really different with Amazon, Spotify, or Netflix. You can listen to any song so long as it's these fours. And then you say, oh, you know, I click on it. And then they sell human futures or that prediction inflated because you can't be bothered to look for serendipity or actually try to refute or find alternative paths forward. Same, by the way, when Gmail autocompletes the message that you're writing to somebody. And now with Microsoft's Copilot, what's the point of even thinking what we're going to write? Let the AI do it for us. And of course, that's convenient, but that's squeezing us out of any creativity and and actually taking us or bringing us closer to automation than we want to be. Now, if you think about what's happening in some ways, we're really becoming almost more of what we already are before. So it's mm-hmm. just increasing whatever bias we have, whatever point of view. So we are really moving farther away from each other, mm-hmm. right? Maybe closer with somebody that thinks exactly like us, but they're becoming more and more tribes, stronger opinions that don't move to your point of people who are persuadable. Mm-hmm. But it's happening and we're not even thinking about it. It's sort of like the boiling frog analogy, which we know is not true, but it's a great analogy. We are all sitting here every day doing it and we don't know how to get off the hamster wheel. So here's the good news, right? Throughout our evolutionary history, we've also given signs, consistent signs, that we have the ability to reverse massive cultural trends or social changes, right? So, I mean, the fast food industry hasn't killed our appetite for good foods, nor has it killed Michelin star chefs. And in fact, they proliferated after that. And it has given us the farm to table movement and, you know, made us more conscious about the benefits of eating healthy, which of course, you know, not that might be a bit of a snobby and elitist kind of counter cultural trend, but it spread and it becomes quite mainstream, right? To the point that it forces fast food restaurants to point how many calories things have and offer salads and maybe even cold-pressed kale juices. Likewise, when we all start to drive and become quite immobile, I mean, things like gym membership and exercise become an antithesis to that. And by the same token, I think, you know, if we think about the fact that a lot of people are opting in to things like mindfulness and meditation as an antithesis to being hyper-connected and not being able to switch off. Even if paradoxically, sometimes they do use AI-powered tools and technology to do this, right? And for example, I monitor my sleep with my Aura Ring, which is AI-based, and I am producing more data and I am competitively checking whether I can improve my score and beat some of my colleagues and team members, etc. But that's a good example of how if you just assume that AI is basically a predictive machine that helps you measure and diagnose things better, it could actually enhance self-awareness and with a bit of willpower and persistent and grit and dedication, actually you can use that information to turn things around or become a better version of you. It's good to know there's a bright side and there are some positives to this because I agree, you know, we are very adaptable. There's one thing about humans that mm-hmm. really defines us that we've, we've adapted to, to times and change. And I agree that we can use some of that AI for good. I have an aura ring. It tells me that I don't sleep enough and I knew that before, <laughs> but at least I know no. that 
now I feel good. The competitive me is good, but you know, we don't need to compare scores. You can do that later if you want. But it's interesting you talked about the creativity piece and how it's shifting us in, you know, potentially you know, giving easy answers with chat GPT. Do you feel like this is an opportunity for people who stay creative, who mm-hmm. are avoiding multitasking, who are doing the hard work? Are we going to stand out more at work? Are these people who are going to rise faster in organizations? How do you mm-hmm. think about leadership in the future with kind of AI guiding mm-hmm. this generation? Yeah, of course. Right now, reactions to ChatGPT. you know, if you think about two extreme opposite cases, there are people who are dismissing it, pointing out errors and reassuring everybody else that they are smarter than AI and ChatGPT, and they're dismissing it. And I do worry for them. And then there are people who are trying it out, experimenting, encouraging others to whether, you know, is their kids at school or their colleagues at work, et cetera. And in the latter group, you have people who are opting in and this thing is catching on faster than TikTok and Instagram because people see the value in actually automating repetitive tasks. Now, still saying with, let's say, generative AI, ChatGPT, or whatever the next version is, I do think that it's redefining the meaning of human expertise in a very interesting way, right? So expertise will no longer be about knowing the answers, but more about asking the right questions. And in fact, there's already professional jobs that are prompt. AI prompt writers, right? And if you read stuff and look what people are sharing, et cetera, you can see how clever and creative some people are understanding what questions to ask. That becomes one of the pillars of expertise. The second one is understanding and vetting the information to see whether it's right or wrong. No different than using Wikipedia or a Google search. The part that is knowledge will be defined as value added incrementally beyond what the wisdom of the crowds, which is often the stupidity of the crowds is, which is what large language models does. Um, Oscar Wilde famously said, everything popular is wrong. And that's probably true if you see what this fits for any topic. And then thirdly, of course, the part that is inherently human and that will define whether somebody is smart or not in terms of their actions and behavior is deciding how to act on the basis of that information, right? And what to ignore. Right. And for leadership, I think, again, anything that is IQ related, algorithmic task with a single objectively verifiable, correct answer, humans will not be able to compete with AI. But other humans will crave things like caring, empathy, validation, human attention in a world in which people will be dependent of AI and machines more and more and more. When they look at their bosses, their managers or leaders, they're going to want somebody who actually gives a damn about them and AI will never give a damn. So, I mean, it's like almost like leadership needs to evolve down the EQ route or humane soft skills. And that also means we shouldn't hire leaders for what they know, their expertise, their hard skills, certainly not their credentials. I mean, obviously things like curiosity, intelligence will matter. Their ability to connect with others on a humane level is what is going to keep them in the job. It's going to be really interesting to see how this changes work. I did actually ask ChatGPT what interview questions I should ask you. And uh, I'm not asking any of those questions today, but they weren't bad. <laughs> they probably would be fine, but they didn't feel tailored enough to me to do it, right? Uh, now, maybe the prompt was wrong. Don't forget, you knew they were wrong and they were probably wrong because you know me, you read the book, you know my work. So you have a lot of expertise to come up with these questions. If I were an expert in, 
uh, holistic, um, uh, hydroponic, agricultural uh, cultives, you would probably have asked GPT and gone with that, right? As opposed to actually spending many, many years to understand <laughs> that. And that's also the danger, right? That's also the danger. Again, I think this is the equivalent of the fast food for our hungry mind is not really nutritious. And I'm always sad when the term deep learning is associated with machines and AI rather than human intelligence, because actually one of the things we should be doing is to learn deeply and immerse ourselves with patience and deliberation and critical thinking into topics as opposed to just be efficient and optimized for speed and laziness. And we must get better at that. I think deep learning is what we all we aspire to. The hard part is that I think I'm not sure we are that smart. We don't go back and look at history. We barely remember what happened a few years ago. The pandemic, in some ways, for some people, might seem like a memory at this point, but there's lessons that we should have learned from there. And that's the challenge. And where I do think it's amazing to see what AI can do because the, the knowledge they can pull back is very much limitless, except that it could be inaccurate. On that note, I think we have the potential to be very smart and do smart things. But again, people who are dismissing ChatGPT and AI often say, oh, you know, okay, you know, it can do ABC, but uh, it's not self-aware, it's not funny, it's not curious, it's not creative. My answer is like, neither are most humans. <laughs> you know, yeah. they could be, but actually, and in fact, it was self-awareness. If you ask it, if it's self-aware, it would tell you, no, I'm just a large language model. I'm AI, so I have no self-awareness, which actually reflects self-awareness. It knows that it doesn't have self-awareness. Contrary to humans who all feel very self-aware when in fact, how many truly are? Can I turn to implications for HR leaders? One of the points you make in the book is that the only universal bias is to assume that we're less biased than other people to your last point. And considering how much time and money organizations are focusing on reducing bias in the workforce, practices when selection, promotion decisions, et cetera, what are the implications for HR leaders to consider thinking about this bias? that really impacts all of us. Yeah. Well, so first, I think here I see huge potential and I'm not naive. Potential means possibility doesn't mean it will happen. But I think the potential first, if we understand that AI is fundamentally a prediction machine and something that can help us identify patterns in very large data sets that are very hard to identify by the naked eye or human intuition, it can be a really, really powerful X-ray-like machine to identify the invisible forces that govern the dynamics that underpin an organizational culture. And, you know, one area where I'm hopeful and somewhat optimistic is the potential that AI has to help us quantify job performance and to measure the value that people add to a team and organization, right? Which is very easily done with unskilled jobs and simple jobs like an Uber driver, but not so easy at the higher levels of the skill echelon is a fascinating paradox in talent management that the more you get paid and the more educated and skilled you are, the harder it is to know whether you're actually adding any value. And I think that's basically why people, not just, or not mostly HR leaders, fear AI. Because if we could go into an organization and reveal the uncomfortable gap between individuals' actual performance or value added and their career success, there'll be a lot of people at the top that fear they'll be found out. Look, even things like measuring and quantifying inclusion, which is very hard to measure. Diversity is easy, but inclusion, you know, how do you know how people are treated? Social network analysis, 
fueled by AI can reveal whether, for example, if you're a woman, people respond more slowly to you on emails, whether they use negative words. I mean, you can quantify more things like microaggression, which are a first world problem, but they're still a problem. And you could actually diagnose things that would really help evidence-based HR practitioners make the case for what goes on in an organization. I'm less impressed by the progress that has happened in recruitment and stuff because that's mostly doing things more efficiently and faster. They haven't increased our level of accuracy in understanding potential or talent, but they add to the efficiencies. And here's my main take on this, that humans are biased by design and they will always be biased. But we do have the ingenuity and the ability to create tools that could de-bias systems, groups, organizations, and societies. And I think AI is potentially that tool. I see the potential in AI to have more impact and make a more inclusive world. But I guess as they're being developed, how biased are these AIs and algorithms? And should we be worried about that? Yes, this is a really important question. We should be worried, but there is a solution. That's the good news. Fundamentally, the sources of bias in AI are almost always human, right? So, and especially in HR, if we're trying to train or teach an AI in a self-driving car to identify trees, traffic lights, and bicycles or, or bikers in a road, um, the human trainers who code these objects, I mean, their opinions about trees and traffic lights and bicycles are irrelevant. Besides, they don't really have strong opinions, right? But if we're using the same methodology to train AI to identify individuals classified as high potential or high performing leaders. And we use human ratings to actually teach the AI or the algorithms to do that perfectly. We shouldn't be surprised that they won't just replicate, but also augment human biases. So, you know, when Microsoft or Amazon fail at their well-meaning attempts to train a chatbot to predict who gets promoted in a certain environment or team, and the chatbot uh, churns out a surplus of middle-aged white male engineers. We accuse the chatbot or the AI of being sexist, as if the AI had a fragile self-esteem that it needs to inflate by bringing other people down, right? Or loved middle-aged white male engineers. And actually, that AI is revealing a bias that exists in the system. If we kill that AI, middle-aged white male engineers still get disproportionately promoted and into leadership roles. And even if you don't do AI, Shouldn't you try to decontaminate your performance ratings to actually make nothing new here, right? So I think the opportunity is to expose bias. And it doesn't matter whether the people coding the AI are male, female, white, blacks. I mean, sure, more diversity can mitigate some of the unpredictable or unexpected errors. But it isn't the case that there is a secret cows or army of hoodie wearing bros in Silicon Valley who are trying to bring down women or minorities by maliciously coding AI in a way that is biased. No, the bias is there because AI is only as good as the data we feed it. And unfortunately in organizations and human capital and HR, a lot of data is corrupted, it's contaminated, And there's a great opportunity, not just for AI ethicists, but also for organizational psychologists and HR people to try to be less wrong, even if it's not going to be perfect or objectively pure at any given time. Well, I think what you're really describing there is how can we be more critical consumers of AI, especially from Mm -hmm. an HR perspective. And 
there might be some more things you want or tips or tricks you want to give us there because there's a ton of HR tech companies that are promoting mm-hmm. and promising their software that uses AI and to remove bias and selection, performance management, career pathing. I mean, you name it. But how can we be more critical consumers of this? So as HR leaders, we go, well, answer these questions. Tell us more about how you do this and how I can de-bias potentially what I'm going to implement in my organization. First, I would hope that HR professionals approach this with an open mind and a healthy degree of skepticism. I always say the best HR leaders and talent management leaders have a healthy degree of skepticism. They have a good bullshit radar and they know what sounds like an impossibility and when something seems too good to be true, it usually is. But the good news is that the parameters that we should put in place or follow to vet these tools, whatever they are, some might be unimaginable today, are the same old IO psychology parameters to estimate, you know, validity, reliability, incremental validity. If anything, we are adding some like fairness, candidate experience, user experience, and then of course, cost and time and scalability. But actually, same old IO psychology works just as it works for traditional psychometric assessment. It can help you vet whatever people think they have. And you know what I find interesting, JP, is that about until about five years ago, or maybe three years ago, everybody was pretending to do AI even when they were not. And now even people who are doing AI are pretending not to do it because they're scared of regulation, right? So we went from like, oh, this is AI when it wasn't to now, no, no, it's not because they're scared of regulation. So it's good that there is an increase in regulation and of course an increase in companies that are doing algorithmic auditing or algorithmic responsibility because we need to protect the buyers and sometimes they're not as skilled or technically sophisticated to judge what people promise. What's the over-under, you think, Tomas, that someone sues an AI chatbot for a selection bias or wrongful termination in the next few years? And they're obviously going to sue the human or the company that designed (laughs) it. And again, I think, you know, ethical AI is now bigger than the whole field of AI and human capital, much like diversity and inclusion is bigger than the whole of HR, right, in terms of coverage. And I think that's good. Again, the parameters or the foundational pillars of ethics have been in place for a while. They're nothing new. I mean, is there informed consent? Do people opt in? Is there a benefit for consumers? Does it actually work and predict stuff? Is it explainable? Again, we're not competing so much against other tools. We're competing against the most unexplainable black box algorithm, which is the intuition underpinning the human mind or brain. When a human interviewer decides to offer somebody a job, we never know why they decided to do that. I mean, they can tell us a story, maybe they believe their own BS, but actually you never know if it's because they were competent or they were confident, they were attractive, they were the same, supporting the same football team. Algorithms, you can always look under the hood and see what happens. And fundamentally, of course, we need to ensure there is a benefit for consumers. And the most important thing is that we're not aiming for perfection, but better than the status quo. And in most instances, the status quo is a very low bar. Well said. Last question, Tomas. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Can I give you two? Of course. I like, I like to break the rules, so I'll give you two. I think, you know, one, one probably more optimistic than the other. Uh, let me start with less optimistic, which is people, machines, and culture. 
So we went from redefining HR as people and culture. I think maybe in five, 10 years, it will be people, machines, and culture, which I think is not a bad thing, but many people are like, oh my God, there's something out of Black Mirror. The second one is the more positive one, rehumanizing. Because I think the real focus and big challenge, maybe the finding challenge for HR in the next five or 10 years is to rehumanize work and ensure that people have a humane experience of work and with work in an age where the influence of machines and AI is unstoppable. That's a fact. So how can HR rehumanize work and help people experience it? Rehumanizing HR. Tomas, thank you so much for being on. Your book, I Human, is terrific. Really appreciate being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Tomas for his amazing insights on how AI is impacting every aspect of our lives and potentially what it means to be human. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and please help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders like yourself. We'll be back next week with Anita Grantham, who's head of HR at Bamboo HR. Anita has built award-winning cultures recognized as Fortune's best companies to work for and best workplaces in technology. In our conversation, Anita will share her approach to becoming a trusted advisor to the business and her progressive ideas on driving engagement and conducting ethical layoffs. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.